What word was removed from the dictionary as archaic one year and added as modern the next? <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> and what famous artist had paintbrushes tied to his hands so he could paint when he got older? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. Well, Marcia, once there was a word that had been in usage for quite a long time, but eventually in 1996, it was removed as archaic. Uh-huh. This and was a decision by a major dictionary manufacturer. Okay. The next year it was added <laughs> back in. As a modern word. As a modern word. So it changed, did it change definition or it was used more... Okay, I don't know the word. Tell me. The Oxford English Reference Dictionary decreed that the noun wireless was archaic. Oh, of course. In 1996. (laughs) Then with the advent of Wi-Fi technology, wireless was added back again in 1997 as a high-tech term. Oh, that's so funny. 12 months makes a big difference in the world of tech. Absolutely. And back in the 1920s, there was a magazine with the trade name Wireless Age, and it was about radio. Did you read it? No, I wasn't there then, Marsh. When was it? 1920. Oh, no, I guess you were. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot. No, you look younger than me. Oh, yeah, I hope so. All right, Bob, what famous artist had paintbrushes tied to his hands? Paintbrushes tied to his hands. The Sistine Chapel artist. That's Michelangelo. Yeah. Is that right? Was no. it him? Because he was up there on the scaffold. Yeah. If you lost your paintbrush, yeah, that was a problem well, up there. Well, that's good. This is because he got old. Hmm. Was it Salvador Dali or Picasso? No, no. Neither one of those. No, no. What century? Early 20th century. Okay. Well, that's, those guys were around back then. I don't know. Who was it? It was Renoir. Really? Yeah. In so the, what was the story behind that? In the last years of his life, he had severe rheumatism and arthritis, and he was confined to a wheelchair, too. Oh. And the paintbrushes were literally tied to his hands so he could paint. And if you look at his work from 1919, 1918, it is a little looser. He did oh, do, is that right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, I saw a picture of him doing that. Anyway, he did do Impressionism, so uh, that helped. He died in 1919 at age 78. Hmm, okay. All right, Marsha, can you tell me what indoor sport was designed for businessmen because basketball was a little too rigorous? (laughs) What? This was designed... Racquetball? No, not racquetball. Okay. This was designed in a YMCA... Okay. Just like basketball was. Yeah, okay. In Massachusetts, just Mm -hmm. like basketball was. In the same decade, just as basketball was. Bowling. No. (laughs) I don't know what. Volleyball. Oh. Volleyball was developed by a Young Men's Christian Organization's Community Center, that's a YMCA, in Holyoke, Massachusetts, in 1895, when William Morgan decided to create a new indoor sport less strenuous than basketball, which had been developed only four years earlier Uh at a YMCA, but still consisted of some physical activity and fun. So he decided to call his new sport Mintonette. Mintonette. (laughs) But... 
a player renamed it, focusing on a key action of the sport, volleying the ball back and forth. Uh-huh. He said, let's call it volleyball. So yeah. that's what it became. I'll be down. And it spread globally, and the big spread of it was in World War I when soldiers took it overseas from America. And that eventually paved the way for it becoming an Olympic sport in 1964. Oh, that's when it became Olympic. Yeah. yeah. Heck, we have like 17 nets down on the beach here on Lake Michigan. Yeah, there's a lot of outdoor volleyball, but it was originally designed as an indoor sport for businessmen. It's one of the few sports you really like to play and indulge in. Who, me? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I really enjoy it. Yeah, you did. But Mintonette was its original name. Okay, I'll just transition right to another basketball question, Bob. Okay. Uh Bet you didn't know that the NBA MVP trophies are made right here in the Milwaukee area. No, I didn't know that. It's a bronze sculpture of Michael Jordan, and it's really quite stunning. It was in the paper this morning. Anyway, the trophy stands 23.6 inches tall and weighs 23.6 pounds. Wow, it's pretty heavy. Why these precise numbers? Why those precise numbers? (laughs) 23.6. I don't know. Why? Because Michael's jersey number was 23, and he won six NBA champions in his life. Oh, really? So they did 23.6. Yeah, for the weight (laughs) and the uh, height. I'll be darned. So just a symbolic. Yeah. All right. Here's another basketball question as we're in basketball season. Yeah, it is. Why are basketball hoops 10 feet high? Because... uh, Most guys top out at nine? I don't know. It had to do with where they were invented, where the game was invented. Where? James Naismith invented it in a YMCA. We talked about that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Got me, Bob. Well, he hung the peach baskets that served as the first hoops on the railings of the running track. There was a running track. yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of old gyms used to have running tracks up above the seating of Uh where the people were. And those were nine feet above the floor. It was ten feet above the floor. I'll be darned. So his decision about the baskets on the railing was one of the few features of that first game that still goes on to this present day. Originally, the game was played with nine people per side as opposed to five, and they used a soccer ball as the basketball had not been invented. Isn't it amazing how what constitutes the beginning of something and it stays with it? Well, this is one of the big differences, too. They were not allowed to dribble the ball, but instead had to be stationary when they were in possession of it. So you would just throw it to another person. That's how the game was done originally. Say that again. What did they do? You couldn't dribble the ball. You had to be stationary. what the fun is that? What the what? (laughs) What the fun is that? (laughs) But the goal remained 10 feet off the ground, even after the inconvenient peach baskets, which required a ladder to retrieve the ball when a shot was successful, were replaced by iron hoops. How long did it take for some one to say, hey, let's take out the bottom of that peach basket. No How long did that take? Just get that thing out of here. Yeah. All right. We've talked many times, Bob, about George Washington and how he escaped death, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The Indians thought he had some magical spirit because their arrows killed his horse, went through his hat. They did everything but kill him. So my question is, what other famous person in world history was shot at eight times by seven different people, but never was hit by a bullet. Is this an American? No. Was it somebody from um, Europe? Yes. And it was in the 19th century or the 20th century? 19th. So the years are the 1800s? Yes. Okay. For some reason, I'm thinking of General George Custer. But he's an American, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we're talking European. Yeah. So is it Napoleon? Nope. <laughs> okay. Well, that makes sense, too. But it was Queen Victoria. No kidding. Yeah. 
Seven different people tried to take her out with a pistol. <laughs> Jeez, seven different assassination yeah, attempts. Yeah, and nobody uh, ever hit her. Oh. So uh, that's what I call destiny, huh? Yeah. Amazing. amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> it is. Her and George Washington <laughs> would have been a good team. <laughs> Okay, Marcia, the information highway is considered a modern term, but it was actually foreseen 100 years earlier at the turn of the 20th century. Who called it the information highway? Somebody I know. Who described an information highway? Somebody I went out with. No, nobody you knew. <laughs> nobody you went out with. I don't know. It was a technology company, though, interestingly. Okay, so it was some company, uh, IBM. Close. In an early advertisement, AT&T described its telephone network as a highway of communication. The year was 1909. So even back then. So, Bob, where do the fastest and the slowest talkers in the United States live? Where did the fastest and the slowest live? Yeah, they actually did a survey on this. What part of the country do they live? I say the fastest talkers are probably in uh, New England. New York, uh, Massachusetts, that area. Mm-hmm. And the slowest talkers somewhere in the south, maybe yeah, Mississippi or yeah, Alabama. That's exactly what I would have said. But nope, it's not even close. It's the Midwest. A recent survey shows that the slowest talkers, which drive me crazy, are the Bears fans, Illinois. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and the fastest talkers are in Minnesota, don't you know? I'll go with fast talkers over slow talkers every time because they make me nuts because I want to finish their sentences as they think through yes. what they're Hello. going to say <laughs> next. So the Bears fans, huh? Talk the slowest. I thought they would talk about a geography, but we're talking Bears fans. So the Bears fans in California uh, speak slowly yeah, the too? The guys on WGN uh, in the morning were really upset. We're not We're not slow talkers. <laughs> we're not slow talkers. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Uh Okay, Marcia, two U.S. states have populations smaller than Washington, D.C. What are those two states? Vermont and Rhode Island. You're close. Rhode Island and Alaska. You're not close at all now. (laughs) I don't know. You had one of them. Vermont. Vermont was one. Uh Uh-huh. The other is Wyoming. Oh, yes. I knew it was some state that had a lot of land. So you think about this, you know, America's capital city is not part of any of the 50 states, but two of the states have fewer people than Washington, D.C. So in 2019, an estimated 705,749 people lived in the Federal District, District of Columbia, compared to 623,989 in Vermont, and 578,759 in Wyoming. Okay. But at uh-huh. least those states have representatives in Congress, you know. Uh-huh. Makes you think that Washington, D.C. probably should have representatives in Congress. But why isn't it a state? Because when it was created, lawmakers had no idea it would grow into a major city as it is today. The topic of D.C. statehood has come up several times, but at least for now, it's still unlikely to become a 51st state. All right. This is curious. What was the inspiration for the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty in Animals? Well, I would think it's somebody treating animals poorly. It was something specific, though. Was it? Yeah. Had to do with transportation. Oh, really? Yeah. Did it have something to do with horses? Yes. Did it? Yeah. The ASPCA was established in 1886, and it was inspired by the abuse of carriage horses. 
Horses were the major form of transportation at the time. They hauled wagons and carriages, and they were often beaten and mistreated, especially when they caused traffic jams. They would do bad, nasty things to them. and so Horses in the middle of a city street, so everybody would see these horses being beaten. Yeah, how yeah. How sad. People got so upset, and that's how the formation of ASPCA. Which stands for? The American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Okay. I have another animal question, but we can get to that in just a moment. Let's take a break. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And me, Marsha Smith. (laughs) Okay. All right, we're back. Marsha, I have another animal question. Now, scientists now believe different creatures perceive time differently. What do they think the difference is based on? Brain capacity? Well, no, it's uh, external factors. Oh, the weather, the sun, the moon. You're close. How fast a species' environment changes. And a lot of that deals with how it hunts for food or if it's being hunted. Oh, well, that would would speed things (laughs) up. If it's being hunted. I'm being hunted. And if you're a sloth, I would think uh, getting to the food would take a little longer. So this is a new unpublished study by the British Ecological Society. They say that some small animals experience time at a much faster rate. They did flickering light studies to measure the rate at which the optic nerve sent information to the brain. And of the 138 species they studied, dragonflies detected change the fastest. Oh, really? Their vision equips them to see changes 300 times a second. 300 hertz is the speed at which they measure time changes. Wow. A bird known as a pied flycatcher has the fastest eyes in the vertebrate kingdom, boasting a rate of 146 hertz. Dogs have vision measured at 75 hertz, and we can only detect changes 65 times per second. Okay, Bob. Can you name any of the top three most dangerous professions? Top three most dangerous professions. I always thought coal mining was one of the top ones. Very dangerous. Nope. Hmm. Top three dangerous professions. Maybe it was back in the day. Yeah, it was very dangerous. Anything underground. We're talking now. Okay, I don't know. Do I get any clues? The uh, You always wait. want me to give you clues, but boy, when it comes to your <laughs> questions, no clues. You just got to figure it out. Don't be whiny, Bob. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Number one, topping the list, loggers. Okay. It's highly physical, and it's in remote locations, and it's far away from medical facilities. Yes, it's true. So the fatality rate is 132.7 out of 100,000 And that's considered high. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So number two is commercial fishing. I wouldn't have guessed that. Hmm. It's the heavy physical labor of it and the extreme conditions out on the water there. Sure, you're lifting nets and wind and everything else. Yeah, and and also it's not close to medical facilities usually. Right. Anyway, and the good old falling overboard is always a possibility. Uh And your chances of dying are 87 out of 100,000. Okay. And third is a pilot or in-flight engineer. And their issues are constantly changing schedules, causing fatigue, bad weather, and busy airspace all contribute to increased chance of human error. Their fatality rate is 55.5 out of 100,000. Pilots, really? Yeah. So there's a lot of stress there. And the remainder of the top 10 are roofers, waste and recycle collection, 
iron and steel workers, traveling salesmen, truck driving, farming, and ranching and construction. I always knew farming was dangerous. Yeah. And again, same thing. You've yeah. remote locations. You're away from anything. It something has to happens. do with them with heavy equipment. Yeah, a lot of machinery you're dealing with. And yeah. usually the only person or one of only two or three people dealing yeah. with huge uh, yeah. pieces of yeah. equipment. Yeah. Okay, Marsha, what Mexican restaurateur gave his name to a popular snack food? Cheeto. <laughs> not Cheeto, but you're close. Am I? Um, taco. No, no not taco. No. no, that's not a snack food. It's a no food, though. It's a what? It's a no food, like you're talking. It's not Cheeto, it's not taco. Uh-huh. It's nacho. Oh, nacho. Yeah. In 1943, a group of military wives were visiting Piedras Negras, a small Mexican city just across the border from Fort Duncan in Eagle Pass, Texas. They dropped by a local restaurant looking for a bite to eat. Now, the restaurant was closed, but the maitre d', or possibly the chef, whose name was Inacio Anyana Garcia Very good, felt sorry for them, <laughs> so he whipped up something based on what was available in the kitchen. He cut up fried tortillas, covered them with shredded cheese and jalapeno peppers, put it in the oven for a few minutes, and he named the snack after his nickname, Nosh. So uh, Nosh, <laughs> really? Ignacio Anyana Garcia invented the nacho. Okay. Bob, here's a quick one. What was the most common use of photography in the beginning? Most common use of photography at the beginning. Yeah. Okay, now let me think about this for a second. What did people use it for? Well, I... I it wasn't selfies, just no, it as wasn't. a clue. <laughs> uh, portraits, I know, they did that. Um, it wasn't used for documents or anything yet, I don't think. was. No. Now we do photocopies all the time and things, but uh, I don't know. What was it originally used all for? Right. For decades after the birth of modern photography in 1839... Goes back that far, it blows yeah, my mind. Yeah. One of the most common uses of the technology was a professionally shot photograph of a dead family member. Oh no! Yeah, they wanted to remember. Oh my! What that people God. looked like, and so that's right. There were all those death photos. Yeah, pictures taken in funeral homes of family members, loved ones, because they figured you're never going to see them again. Let's take a picture of them. Yeah, well, that's right. There was You don't have a scrapbook at home full of uh, family Other pictures. pictures. Oh, yeah. dear. So you had that, and then you had the hair thing. They took hair samples. Yes. That's how you remembered the Oh, so sad. Newly pictures deceased. of your yeah. loved ones yeah. and their leg yeah. there with their coffins with their hands folded on their chest. That's something I never want to remember. Uh-huh. Just, they're gone. I remember them smiling. And of course, you don't have pictures of them smiling or laughing either. So Well, not back then. Yeah, that's what I mean. If you had a picture of them, they were stern looking at the camera. Yeah. Like, when is this going to get <laughs> like over? Like your relatives, right? <laughs> that okay. was the Smith family. Happy photo from oh my 1898. God. I, I wanted to show you yesterday was this really old photograph of this family, and they were all cracking up. You oh, no kidding. You never see that. That's very unusual. Yeah, that's why it came up on my feed. It was pretty funny. Okay, Marcia, this shows you it depends on how you ask the question. Okay. You could obscure the answer. So here's the question. What former DuPont chemist gave his name to a new kind of kitchenware. Ah. Uh, well, I'm supposed to know his name? Yeah. I'll just think of a kitchenware product. What uh, former DuPont chemist gave yeah. his name to a new kind of kitchenware? It, was it the name of the of the uh, the product? Yeah. The product like yeah. a spatula or something? Something like, like that. Like that product? Okay, I'll say John Spatula. No, it's not John <laughs> Spatula. Who never existed, by the way. <laughs> This is a chemist who held numerous jobs before taking a position with Viscaloid, which was a subsidiary of DuPont in 1937. 
He left a year later to start his own business as a DuPont subcontractor and eventually developed a flexible, unbreakable plastic called polyethylene, which he used to manufacture lightweight containers with airtight lids. He gave them his name, Earl Tupper Tupperware. Oh, no kidding. Earl Tupper. He was a former DuPont chemist. So, you know, we don't think about that. I mean, we're lucky. He could have been Jim Schwartz. Schwartzware doesn't have the same ring to it. He could have uh, devised some kind of agent of death, you know, or (laughs) some kind of horrible thing. Could have Schwartzware home parties. Schwartzware. (laughs) There we go. All right, Bob. Did you realize they had a problem selling the product at first, Tupperware? People didn't understand how to use it. Really? How, How can that be? Well, they just didn't see what the point of it was. And that's why they started the home demonstration parties. Oh, okay. Bonnie Wise was the marketing person who started the housewife demonstration parties. That changed everything, and soon Tupperware could be found in kitchens throughout the country. But that's why it was originally sold at these home parties, because people couldn't understand how to use this stuff. What do I do with this? (laughs) Can you believe that? No. It seems simple, doesn't it? Well, it seems like, oh, look at this. I can save stuff easily in the fridge. Okay. All right. Here's a little factoid. You know we breathe roughly 25,000 times a day? 25,000. So that's something we do without thinking. That's correct. Every day. That's right. 25,000 times? That's correct. Does that show you how marvelous your body is that it does things like this? Our bodies did a lot of things this week, including <laughs> breathing, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> we well, yeah. both got the stomach flu. Oh, my goodness. That was, uh, that, isn't it amazing how disabling that is yeah. for about yeah. 24 hours just or more? It knocks you on your butt. That's you think for sure. I'm never going to be the same yeah. again. I just want to die. I want to die. <laughs> God. What country, Bob, has a cheese stockpile? A cheese stockpile. Yes. So just in case we run out of cheese. You can't be too careful. We got a stockpile of cheese. <laughs> Would it be someplace like Switzerland or Germany or uh-huh. Italy? You tell me, Bob. It's someplace like Switzerland, <laughs> Germany, or Italy. Pick one. Okay, Switzerland. No, United States. Really? Oh, yeah. It we goes, have a stockpile? Uh, one point four. Just like a, the strategic oil reserve, strategic <laughs> yes, cheese reserve, too? That is correct. <laughs> 1.4 billion pounds of the stuff is in storage. Yeah. Oh, my God. What it was is we had surplus, and it was to help out the farmers. So we started stockpiling it. Oh, I, I see. remember when uh, I worked at the food pantry, the one thing we always had was cheese because there was a cheese stockpile we could go to that had tons of it. So this cheese reserve was started by the government because they bought up surplus cheese that wasn't being sold Correct. to help the farmers. Or, or milk and stuff, and, okay. they, and uh, they just couldn't sell it all. So now we have a strategic yeah. cheese reserve. That's right. Other countries have their stockpiles too, Bob. Canada has stockpiles of maple syrup. And ch- <laughs> That's where most of the maple syrup comes from. It's I just read 70%, that the other day. 70%. That's amazing. And China has a pork stockpile. <laughs> really? I wouldn't have guessed that. Yep. All right, Bob. Are new babies born colorblind? I think they are, aren't they? Well, that's- I'll say yes. <laughs> I got a 50% chance of being right you with that do. kind of a question. Yes, yes. Well, we have a, a The answer new is gr- yes. We have a new grandchild. They are colorblind. You- yes, it's true for four months. Hmm. And it's because the rods and cones in their eyes don't perceive color yet, but it starts coming in at four months. Okay. And, and here's something we often fight about. <laughs> okay. Uh, as I've told you many times, Bob, men are more colorblind than women. No, they're not. <laughs> one in 12 men are colorblind, while only one in 200, Bob, here 200 women are colorblind. <laughs> but women have a lot of other problems. <laughs> 
<laughs> Whoa, did I say that? We're smarter. That can be uh, onerous. That's true. <laughs> uh, and it centers around telling red and green variants that they cause the most trouble. Okay. And it's your X chromosome, sweetheart, that's the culprit. I see. <laughs> Just so you know. Okay, here I have a question for you about naming again. What weapon of war is named after a British artillery officer? Well, you're full of uh, naming uh, rights today. This is deadly projectiles, typically small metal shot, but also fragments of shell casings shattered by an explosive charge. Okay, all right. I'll just say good old uh, Harry Grenade. Actually, Henry Shrapnel. Okay. <laughs> that was, yeah. I was on the right track. He invented the anti-personnel weapon in the late 18th century. What a mm-hmm. terrible, terrible invention. Okay. And it bears his name, Henry Shrapnel. Okay. Bob, did you know Bill Shakespeare invented a name? Uh, a very popular modern name. You know what it is? Bill Shakespeare, meaning yeah. William Shakespeare. Yes. Let's sir. have some serious uh, Let's respect. Let's have some to the respect. Man. Okay. Yes. William Shakespeare invented a modern name. Yeah. It's something it. I should know. Yeah. As you would say. Uh-huh. Is this something I should know? <laughs> okay, well, I don't know a, the answer. The name is Jessica. It never appeared before, never heard of before till Really? William put it in his book, along with phrases such as too much of a good thing, the clothes make the man. We can also thank Shakespeare for the name Jessica. I didn't know that. The bard first used it in his play, The Merchant of Venice. And it was likely written about 1596. Jessica doesn't sound like a name from 1596. No, it does doesn't. It? I wonder how, what was his inspiration it, to name it. Well, That's interesting. I'm going to tell you. Oh, okay. It's the name of the moneylender Shylock. That's his defiant daughter. Some scholars think Shakespeare may have been inspired by the Hebrew name Ishka from the Bible, which was spelled Jeska, J E S K E, in some English translations. And he uh, used it. It means to see and to possess foresight. And it became extremely popular in the years between 1976 and 2000. It was always one of the top 10 most popular girl names, Jessica. But Shakespeare actually invented it. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It is. I didn't know that. Me either. All right. Here's the name, uranium. Yeah. Who who was called uranium? Well, it wasn't a guy <laughs> Bad named... Bad baby name. Bad Bill, baby Bill name. Bill uranium, no. <laughs> The German chemist Martin Heinrich Klaproth named named the newly discovered element uranium. Why did he call it uranium? Well, there was mine and yours. Uranium. It it was basically a popular name, Marcia, because (laughs) he named it after the seventh planet, which had itself been discovered only eight years before. So he decided, well, I'll call this uranium. I'll be darned. Yeah, so people are affected, even in the sciences, by what's popular or what's current, what's new, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Funny. Here's a question for you to wrap up my end of things. All right. What city does the world's largest tunnel exist in, and what does that tunnel deliver to that city? We're not talking about the channel between Britain and France, are we? No. It's not for trains. This is other than trains. Not for trains. Okay. All right. Not for cars. Okay. Not for transportation. All right, tell me. It's New York City. The Delaware Aqueduct delivers drinking water to New York City through the world's longest tunnel from the Delaware River. So the tunnel travels from upstate in the Catskill Mountains 85 miles. No kidding. Okay. All right. I'm going to end with a quote, Bob, from Carrie Bradshaw. Oh, from Sex in the City. Very good, Bob. Okay. Yes, and she said, I like my money where I can see it, hanging in my closet. 
<laughs> well, that's that's what clothes are. That's true. It's money hanging in the closet. <laughs> and all those shoes she had, oh, my word. Oh, that's right. And, you know, the producer of that does Emily in Paris, and that's he does right. the same over-the-top fashion. fashion. Yeah, Exactly. Although we kind of get a kick out of that show. Yeah, it's fun. it has its moments, absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed the half hour here. And you'll join us again next time when we return. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. You've been listening to The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.